This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between. And we tell your stories, too. And send them to ouramericannetwork.org, because some of our very best have been from the people who listen to this show, from you. And this next story, well, it's the story of Virginia Hall. And she's a World War II spy who overcame both physical and societal ills during a time when the world seemed to be tearing itself apart, literally. Now for her story, as told by Judy Pearson. Virginia Hall was once asked why she never told her story. She replied that no one had ever asked her. In 2003, I began asking. My quest took me to her niece in Baltimore, newly declassified intelligence records in the National Archives, then to London, Paris, and across the French countryside. I conducted countless interviews in English and in French, and read dozens of personal accounts. What ultimately unfolded was the story of an incredible woman. She was intelligent, brave, and outspoken. She was loyal, daring, and stubborn. But as a young woman, all of Virginia Hall's energies were directed at becoming a foreign service officer. At high school graduation, while her chums were thinking of marriage and families, Virginia announced that the only way for a woman to get ahead in the world was with an education. After several undistinguished years at Radcliffe and Barnard, she went to the Sorbonne in Paris and then the Consulaire Académie in Vienna, from which she graduated in 1929. Back in the States, now fluent in French and German, she applied to take the Foreign Service exam. The exam consisted of three parts. The first was written, covering all manner of topics including world history, geography, and sociology. The second tested the applicant's knowledge of a foreign language, Virginia opted for French. And the third part of the exam, far more subjective, gave the examiner the power to judge what kind of officer the applicant would make. Virginia failed the exam, took it again, and was failed again. It was 1930. Women had only had the right to vote for 10 years, and the number of female Foreign Service officers could be counted on one hand. Gender discrimination was hard at work. She told a family friend that if she couldn't get into the Foreign Service through the front door, she'd try going in through the back door and landed a job as clerk at the American Embassy in Poland. She once again applied for the exam, but before she completed it, she was transferred to the American consulate in Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey. Here, her life changed forever. On a December Saturday afternoon hunting expedition with some friends in 1933, Virginia's gun accidentally discharged into her left foot. Despite doctors' best efforts, gangrene set in, and to save her life, they removed her leg from the knee down. What might have been considered by some as a life-ending event, Virginia saw as merely a delay in plans. When she was well enough to travel, she returned home to Baltimore to recuperate and be fitted with a seven-pound wooden prosthesis. And a year later, she was back at work, 
this time at the American consulate in Venice, from which she requested to take the foreign service exam yet again. But this time, rather than test questions, a letter arrived, informing her that, according to an obscure statute, amputees were not accepted in the foreign service. The letter concluded by politely asking Virginia not to apply again. She simply wouldn't fit in. As Hitler began blazing across Europe, a discouraged Virginia Hall left her consular job and went to France. Here, her leg was not an issue. She was gratefully accepted as a volunteer ambulance driver for the French army. Nor was her leg an issue several months later, when in London, she was approached by a special operations executive employee, the SOE. This undercover paramilitary organization had been created by Winston Churchill to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. The current war was unlike any other. The Allies needed extraordinary warfare in the form of espionage and sabotage. Escaping French military had told the British that there were many in France who would be willing to rise up against the Nazis, given enough organization and arms. Leaders who could be infiltrated into the country were needed, and Virginia fit the bill. The Brits didn't give a hoot about her gender. In fact, it was believed that women would make the best spies. This doesn't surprise those of us who are women, but it was a revelation to the men. Furthermore, men were being whisked to Germany as laborers. A man on the streets in France needed reasons for being there, but a woman didn't and could travel about more easily. Nor did the Brits care how many limbs Virginia had lost. Her disability was unknown to most. She walked only with a slight limp. At the SOE's training camps, Virginia learned things her Baltimore contemporaries would never have imagined. I had the good fortune to interview one of the instructors while I was in London. Leslie Fernandez taught SOE recruits, including Virginia, physical combat, in other words, how to kill. And Virginia wasn't shown any favoritism because of her missing leg. She wouldn't have accepted it anyway. The only training she didn't receive was in parachuting, the primary means by which agents were infiltrated. It was 1941, and America had not yet entered the war. Virginia would be free to enter France as a non-combatant, which she did using journalism as her cover. And when we come back, we'll continue this story, Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with a Wooden Leg. And by the way, you're not hearing stories like this many other places, folks. And to hear about her grit, her perseverance, and rising above the odds, well, we love stories like this. Virginia Hall's story, again, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, continues after these messages.
And we return to Our American Stories. And when we left off, Virginia Hall was sneaking into France back in 1941. Not a time actually to be going into France. And she was posing as a journalist to act as a British intelligence operative. Let's return to the author, Judy Pearson. I spent hours digging through the British National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum Archives in London, both of which were rich in material. I heard the oral histories of those recruited agents who had daringly dropped into occupied France, where Virginia and others awaited them. When I arrived in France after spending several days digging through the archives in Paris, I rented a car and took off across the country to visit firsthand all of the cities Virginia had worked from. She was ultimately sent to Lyon, the center of resistance activities in unoccupied France. So I went to Lyon as well. There, under her journalism cover, while ostensibly collecting information for newspaper articles, Virginia was also collecting information about Nazi activities. Her flat, innocently appearing as that of a hard-working writer, was the clearinghouse for every British agent who was sent to central France in 1941. Through Virginia, they were able to connect with fellow agents and contact others to help them. They collected counterfeited money and wireless radios needed to perform their work. When they were captured and imprisoned, Virginia worked on their escapes. She organized her own group of resistance members in Lyon and had contacts in Marseille and at the Spanish border, two places from which people could disappear should the need arise. She and her group saved innumerable lives of both downed Allied pilots needing passage out of France and agents who were being hunted by the Gestapo. But it wasn't long before Virginia herself became hunted. Klaus Barbie, later known as the Butcher of Lyon, spread the word that a lady with a limp, an Englishman or a Canadian, was wanted in connection with espionage activities. His posters announced that Virginia was the most dangerous of all Allied spies and that everyone should help him find and destroy her. Virginia's exodus across the Pyrenees Mountains, the rugged chain that separates France from Spain, was in November 1942. The cold and rigorous march would have been exhausting for anyone, but dragging a seven-pound wooden leg through the snow made it all the more difficult for Virginia. She hadn't dared tell the guide about her leg. He was already grumbling because she was a woman. At one point, she was able to radio London to tell them she was on her way out of France. She mentioned that Cuthbert, her clever nickname for her leg, had become quite tiresome. The recipient of the message, ignorant of the leg's name, wired back that if Cuthbert had become tiresome, she should have him eliminated. At the end of the grueling 30-mile journey, Virginia was arrested in Spain for not having papers. She was imprisoned for six weeks, released only after her former cellmate, a Barcelona prostitute, was able to get word to the British consulate that she was being held. By the time Virginia had returned to England in early 1943, a new intelligence organization had been born. Its name was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was patterned after the SOE, with one exception. It was purebred American, 
led by a hero from World War I named General Wild Bill Donovan. Virginia was desperate to get back into the fight, and transferring to the OSS made sense since she was an American. But there was a concern. She was now a hunted woman whose sketched picture had been spread throughout France. A return could only be facilitated if she were disguised. That of an old peasant woman fit the bill. On her second trip to occupied France, Virginia's intelligence and ingenuity served her and saved her many times. This time, she acted as her own radio operator, setting up numerous resistance cells. Three months after returning to France, the greatest armada the world had ever seen crossed the channel for the D-Day landings. When the signal was given, her resistance cell went into action, cutting off Nazi supply lines and disrupting their communications, all in a successful effort to aid the Allied invasion of Europe. By the fall of 1944, all of France was liberated. During Virginia's second stint in the country, she had had the pleasure of leading 1,500 resistance volunteers who killed 150 Nazis and captured 500 more. Her team had sabotaged numerous transportation and communication links. Virginia's leadership and sang-froid was not only admired, it became legendary. They called her La Madonna, the Madonna. Virginia was awarded the Member of the British Empire, the French Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, the only woman in World War II to receive that American distinction. But Virginia wasn't interested in accolades. She wanted to continue her work in espionage. Although the OSS had been dissolved, Virginia was one of the first women on board the new intelligence agency, known as the Central Intelligence Group. It became the Central Intelligence Agency in December 1947. But the new world of intelligence was very different from the one Virginia had previously been a part of. Communism was the enemy now, and as one observer put it, Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Virginia wanted desperately to become an operative again, willing to undergo whatever training was necessary. But at the advanced age of 41, she was looked upon as old school. Her skills were outdated, and her aggressiveness was offensive to the younger men who were her superiors. Her experience was dismissed as not pertinent. After all she'd been through and all the sacrifices she gladly made, once again, Virginia Hall didn't fit in. Virginia had married Paul Goyot in 1950, a French-American she had met toward the end of the war. She accepted mandatory retirement from the CIA in 1966, and she and Paul moved to a farm in Barnstown, Maryland. They raised poodles, gardened, and grew old together. Virginia died in 1982, and Goyot followed five years later. She was never bitter about the fact that her career hadn't begun or ended as she would have liked. Rather, Virginia chose to remember the magnificent days in the middle, the days when her clever mind and brave heart 
help defeat fascists bent on world domination. And a special thanks to Judy Pearson. And by the way, her book about Virginia Hall was called Wolves at the Door, the true story of America's greatest female spy. And I had never heard that story, and I'm a big World War II buff, and it doesn't get better than a story like that. I mean, the woman accidentally shoots her foot off, and for most people, that's it. She gets turned down once, twice, but is determined to be a member of the Foreign Service, eases her way into France when most people will be running from France as the Nazis come and occupy the country, and ultimately, Klaus Barbie, the butcher, has her as the most wanted person in the Nazi regime when it comes to spies. Certainly, what an impact she had, her life, what an example. And by the way, to be the only woman to win the American Distinguished Service Cross, I don't know why more of us don't know this story, Um, but that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, what Judy Pearson did here, the author... I mean, she literally walked in Virginia Hall's shoes, traveled all over Europe just to to honor her story. And these are the kind of writers and researchers we love to put on the show. Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, here on Our American Stories. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory@oanetwork.org. That's yourstory@oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Joan Rivers passed away at 81 years old. And as always, all of our This Days in History are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to learn everything you need to know about our country, about Western civilization, arts, literature, all the beautiful things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for all of their great free online courses. Today, we celebrate the life of the one, the only, Joan Rivers. An unparalleled legend in the entertainment industry, Joan was more than just a comedian. She was a force of nature, an internationally recognized celebrity, an Emmy Award-winning talk show host, a Grammy Award-winning performer, a Tony Award-nominated actress, best-selling author, playwright, screenwriter, film director, columnist, lecturer, radio host, jewelry designer, entrepreneur, and the renowned creator 
of the modern-day red carpet. Like so many of the great comedians, her life was full of tragedy. We'll get into some of that in just a minute, but first, let's remember Joan for what she was best at, making us laugh. Here she is on The Carol Burnett Show in 1970. Dumb doesn't matter when you're beautiful, which is why I am educated. (laughs) What good does education do you? You're a woman. Does it do you any good? Now that you're married, what good? I'm a philosophy major. What good does philosophy do me now? I can go to the butcher, prove the meat doesn't exist. What good? What good? good? Calculus. Calculus. I was educated. I can figure out the length of a room. You don't need calculus when you figure out the length of a room once you're married. You know how you figure it out? It's always seven inches longer than your vacuum cleaner cord. That's how you figure out the length of the room. <laughs> Physics, remember that lot? An object in motion tends to remain in motion. Remember that? An object in motion tends to remain in motion. A lie! Once you're married, an object in motion gets back in a bed when the object goes to the office. <laughs> That's where I spend my day. I'm educated. Why should I kill myself? Why should I cook? Do you ever stop and say to yourself, why me? Some days I'm lying in bed. I say, why me, Lord? The Lord wanted me to cook, he would have given me aluminum hands. Why me? (laughs) These hands were meant to hold charge cards. Look at that. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Why should I... Why should I clean? Housework is futile. You make the bed, you do the dishes. Six months later, you have to start all over again. (laughs) It's true. My house is clean enough, believe me. Once a month, I get out of bed. I dust. <laughs> Guests are coming. I put out a drop cloth. I say I'm painting. That's it. <laughs> and you have kids because the kids can clean if you're smart. If they can crawl, they can dust. It's all your attitude. <laughs> you tie the diaper to the legs and you throw the cookie across the room. Go get it, stupid. And that was probably the cleanest example of her brand of stand-up comedy that we can share with you on Our American Stories because this is, after all, a family show. Joan could curse, she could swear, she could tell some of the dirtiest jokes and off-color jokes that any male comedian could tell. But that's for another show. We're going to hear a much more personal side of Joan Rivers. What better place to start than her childhood? Apparently... I was a really, really, really pretty infant to about three where people would stop my mother on the street and say she should model and, you know, like really this glorious little thing. And then instead of getting that way, I started to go that way and became not this little golden-haired angel. I became a brown-haired, chubby child. Everything was all right. I mean, my parents had a good marriage. They argued about money. They argued about things parents, you know, but it wasn't a fight going on all the time at home. My place in the family was the funny one. I was always funny. Always witty, not funny. Ha ha. Not crossing your nose and putting the ice cream on your head. I was funny that I might make a remark about the ice cream. Got me the attention and the love, and everybody say, well, Barbara, my sister, is a smart one, but Joan is so clever. The daughter of Russian immigrants, Joan was raised in an upper-class lifestyle. My dad was a general practitioner. He had a huge practice, but people would pay him in chickens. 
you know, people would pay him. And uh, to this day, I could go into any ethnic household, and I've eaten that food, because somewhere along the line, one of those ladies made a strudel for my father. You know, so so the money was always a big thing, and we were always in the very good schools. I mean, my mother just lived a life of fantasy. <laughs> She graduated from Barnard College in New York in 1954 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature and Anthropology. Before entering show business, Rivers worked at various jobs, such as a tour guide at Rockefeller Center, a writer at an advertising agency, and a fashion consultant at Bond Clothing Stores. During the late 50s, Rivers appeared in a short-run play, Driftwood, co-starring a then-unknown Barbara Streisand. The play ran for six weeks, Rivers performed in numerous comedy clubs in the village in New York before making her first appearance as a guest on The Tonight Show, hosted at the time by Jack Parr. Here's Joan talking about that first TV appearance. First television appearance, I was brought up by an agent to The Jack Parr Show. And uh, I thought it went very well because I was then in office temporary. So I was telling him I used to steal stamps and sell them for half price, which is all true. And I told these stories. I said, I'm from Larchmont. My dad's a doctor. And uh, what was my joke? Oh, he spent two years in uh, medical school, two years in Tijuana. You know, his first words are, does that look right to you, nurse? And she always says, it doesn't matter, doctor. And uh, the next day, a man named Bob Shanks brought me up. The next day uh, at the meeting, they said, gee, that girl was funny to Parr. And Parr said, she was a liar. A doctor's daughter doesn't steal stamps. And he took a pencil and put it through my name. And I was on earth, I floating. I thought I had done so well. She's a liar. A doctor's daughter doesn't steal stamps. That was it. Pencil through my name. Pencil through her name. By 1965, Rivers had a stint on Candid Camera as a gag writer. She made her first appearance on The Tonight Show with the new host, Johnny Carson, on February 17, 1965. Joan's final appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny was on April 25th, 1986, to promote her new book. Would you welcome Miss Joan Rivers? The author spot. The book spot. The author spot. How are you? This is the clothes I wore. The first time I'm wearing 1965 hair. Is this the same dress that you wore? Was it 65? February 17th, 1965. 21 years. 21 years. And you had the strand the of pearls, pearls, the same hairdo. Isn't that like, nice? How you feeling? Great. Yeah, we've gotten old. It's, it's very hard for me to believe sometimes oh. on the time frame to think that it was 21 years ago when you first came out and sat down. Do you, do you think you're any older? I don't feel any older. I feel great. Yeah, you know when I feel older? I went to buy sexy underwear and they automatically gift wrapped it. Oh. And you go, oh. <laughs> Less than one month later, Joan was banned from The Tonight Show. The soon-to-launch Fox Television Network announced that it was giving her a late-night talk show, The Late Show, starring Joan Rivers, making Rivers the first woman to have her own late-night talk show on a major network, making her a Carson competitor. Here's Joan. I left the show. I was hosting and um, getting better numbers than he was. And my contract was at the end. And they came to me and offered me my own show. And the first one I called was Carson to say, Johnny, I'm going to do my own show. And he hung up on me. And I called him back. 
and he hung up again and then told the press I never called him and never told him and the press picked up of course the whole thing and uh, I had a very bad reputation for about seven years and people would say to me you're such a bitch and you can hear the sting and this one really stung Joan bad and people know about Carson he was a tough man and he was toughest on Joan it should have been a congratulations to Jones frankly Uh, Carson had felt she'd betrayed him, but of course she was just moving on. When we come back, more on the life of Joan Rivers after these commercial messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of the life of Joan Rivers. And we had left off with her leaving The Tonight Show, Johnny being tough on her, the world being tough on her. How dare a woman leave a big hit show run by a man? By the way, same theme with Dolly Parton when she left Porter Wagoner's show. How could a woman do that? Betrayal. By the way, men did this every day. So this was what it was like, and Joan was a real trailblazer, and she paid a price for doing that, a personal one. The Late Show with Joan Rivers premiered on October 9, 1986 with David Lee Roth, Pee Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher as guests. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Joan Rivers! I have, I have a whole, you bought my book, thank you. I, I have a whole monologue, which you won't do tonight. I am just... It's been five months, and so much has been said, and so much has been written, and I am just so, so happy to be here, and I thank you all so much. What a moment for Joan. What a moment. By the way, what a lineup. David Lee Roth, Pee Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher. Could you imagine being the wardrobe person on that one? And the ego manager? Joan Rivers had everything she ever wanted, fame and fortune, the job of her dreams, a loyal husband, a loving child, a lavish estate and a future that beckoned with possibility. After years of struggle, she had not only succeeded as a comedian, but made history as TV's first and only female late-night talk show host. Less than a year later, she lost everything. In May of 1987, the first lady of comedy was fired from her job and publicly humiliated. Her husband, Edgar, unable to bear his own failure as a manager and a producer, killed himself. Uh, that was really with Edgar, my husband. Um, he was in such pain. Everything was crashing down around us. Uh, we had a big conflict. with. We were on Fox, and he had a tremendous conflict with the Fox people. He had had an open-heart surgery, and they had him on all kinds of medication. And he went into this terrible depression, major, major depression. And he really couldn't function as a producer. He just was couldn't make decisions, made the wrong decisions, um, worried about the wrong things, you know, all, everything was just wrong. And then uh, I just, just tried to do it all. Some really stupid woman said to me about six years ago, why didn't you just leave him and you want to go? Yeah, I'm going to leave my husband 21 years because he's going through bad times. Um, but it was terrible. And uh, I wish I could say I was a wonderful good wife. I, I was furious at him that 
we were both hurting. We were both very upset. But I certainly knew why we were off the air. You know, I knew it was him. I, I guess somewhere I felt he should have just, he should have stepped aside and not late, let me make this grand gesture that destroyed my career. And here, Joan shares the painful details of how her husband committed suicide. He made uh, several tapes, to, one to me, one to my daughter, and one to uh, his best friend. He left three tapes of what he's going to do and why and goodbye and all that. And then just took the pills and killed himself. And my daughter got the call. That was some idiot called and said, is your mother home? And she said, no. And I said, well, please tell her. <laughs> her husband committed suicide in Philadelphia. So she was 15 years old. That's, that's something for a 15-year-old to get. And she had to go and tell me. I don't know if she's ever gotten over it. Because she had spoken to him the night before and he had said, so when are you coming home, Dad? He said, I'll be home tomorrow, Melissa. And then he hung up and made the tapes and killed himself. And my daughter now uh, is in her early 30s. And I don't know how she trusts anybody. How, how can you trust any man for the rest of your life when your father said, I'll be home tomorrow, and then killed himself? It's unimaginable, actually. In her darkest hour... Joan had one friend who quite possibly saved her life as she sat alone herself contemplating suicide. I don't know if I really would have, but I really got the gun out, the whole thing. And my dog, one of my little dog came and uh, sat in my lap, literally. And I said, oh, somebody loves me. Got to take care of you. And that was... That was a big change, big turning point in my life. But my little, this little stupid dog, this little Yorkie who I adored, literally came and sat on my lap. And I thought, well, no one's going to take you, Spike. You're too mean. So I have to hang around for you. And literally, you saved my life. Joan was bitter about her husband's suicide to the end. And who could blame her? But she didn't let it define who she was. Left me in the ruins of the temple. You know, it's easy for Samson to push down the walls. But now we're in the, now what are we going to do? I have no show. I have, he had made bad investments. He wasn't a good businessman either. Everything was stopped. Stopped. And here I am. And I have a daughter that's in great trouble. And you're not here to help me? I'm furious. I walk past his picture to this day and I go, or friends will come up to me and say, well, when you're in heaven, you'll re-meet Edgar. And I go, oh, no, I won't. (laughs) Not looking to see him again. But I don't hang around and say, leave me alone. I'm I'm angry at my husband. I mean, I say, okay, let's, let's write that new play. Let's get out and do that television show. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move it. Isn't this fabulous? Yeah, I still hate my husband, but isn't this fat? I won't let that be the primary blanket covering my life. And boy, didn't she. 
She moved on, rebuilt a career, and it took her in places no one could have ever expected. And an icon, an icon. And you never really heard her in public talk about what you just heard. I mean, we had to do the digging, and we do that here. And we love bringing you the story behind the story. By the way, when you listen to Carson's story, it's really sad. And when you listen to most of these comedians' stories, oh my goodness, Robin Williams, a train wreck. And tragic. And here on this show, we don't mock the artists who lose their life prematurely. One thing is clear. It's a hard life. It's a tough life. Or all these lives wouldn't end so tragically. And we look to them to entertain us, to ennoble us. And then, well, we don't pay much attention thereafter. As a philanthropist, Rivers supported causes including HIV-AIDS activism. She served as an honorary director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She also supported guide dogs for the blind, donated to Jewish charities, animal welfare efforts, Habitat for Humanity, and the Boy Scouts of America. On August 28, 2014, Rivers experienced serious complications and stopped breathing while undergoing what was scheduled as a minor cosmetic surgery in Manhattan. Resuscitated an hour later, Rivers was transferred to the hospital and later put on life support. She died on September 4 at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, having never awoken from a medically induced coma. Joan eventually made it back to The Tonight Show after being banned for nearly 30 years when Jimmy Fallon took over as host. The day that she passed, Jimmy Fallon had this to say about her. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but uh, uh, our pal Joan Rivers passed away today. I know. Gosh, what a crazy time this is right now. And she's one of the, the funniest people uh, in the world, ever. And she used to come on the show. We loved her. The crew loved her. Everyone loved Joan Rivers. Uh, she is uh, fearless. Uh, one of the, I mean, she would come out and just say what you were thinking, but you wouldn't say it. <laughs> you would stop, and she, but she wouldn't stop. She would just say it. Uh, and a lot of people thought you know, her humor was mean and stuff like that, but she just did it because she wanted to make everyone laugh. That's the goal. And she could take a joke just as easily as she could dish it out. One of the classist acts. Uh, I love her so much. Class act all the way. Um, she, uh, we, we had her, she hadn't been on The Tonight Show in, I want to say, over 26 years. Yeah. Uh, since Johnny Carson, they, some, some dispute or something. And she hadn't been on, and we had her on Late Night and welcomed her back to the network NBC. But we had her on our very first Tonight Show when I, when I took over. And she hadn't, so I'm lucky to say that I got to work with her and have her on our Tonight Show. And I was just so blessed to do that. But we had this bit where at the beginning of the show I said, to, all my friend, uh, to my friend out there who said I couldn't host The Tonight Show, you owe me a hundred bucks. And then I had a parade of celebrities come out and throw a hundred bucks on the desk, like De Niro, Tina Fey, uh, you know, everyone did it, it was great. And Joan Rivers, we asked Joan to be one of the people, and that was, she came out, and she came over to me, and uh, she started crying and gave me a kiss. It was really emotional and really nice. Um, She's just, I don't, I don't want to show a clip because I don't think it'll do her justice because she's just too funny. So what I would tell people is to rent Joan Rivers a piece of work on Netflix or Apple TV or wherever people watch movies now. Is that how you do it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Joan Rivers, a piece of work. You see this documentary. Have you guys seen this movie? It's, un, it's unbelievable when you see how much her work ethic and everything that went into it. She had a, a file cabinet full of jokes that she would have, like, a file cabinet full of, like, there was one I saw, like, there's a whole stack of cards about Tony Danza. I go, why, why, why would you need that? I don't know why, why would you have that? Uh, anyways, we loved her. Uh, we, uh, we will definitely miss her. 
Gosh, Joan Rivers, one of the greatest. And there you have it, the life of Joan Rivers. And we're celebrating it and honoring her life because on this day in history, she passed in 2014. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by our good friends at Hillsdale College. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from sports to the arts, from business to history, science and your stories and send them to ouramericannetwork.org and our team will listen to them and we'll produce them and we'll send them back out at you. You are the hour in Our American Stories and we love telling stories about redemption and today we have Chris Buckley's story a man who's lived a life filled with hate and anger. Chris Buckley's life began with an absent father. You know, him and my mom would fight a lot, and I I often refer to my my childhood as like like a constant revolving door of drunken bar fights that I was like a fly on the wall to. When I was young, I was angry at the fact that, you know, like all the other kids... You know, they they had a dad. I, I didn't have that. My dad would come home drunk maybe once every week or so, pass out on the couch, and before he'd leave out the next day, like, I would get my, my you know, regular whipping. I remember the first time I played football, my grandma came. You know, like, everybody's dads were out there, like, cheering for their kid, and, and you know, I had my... My 60-year-old grandma was out there doing a puzzle book because she had no interest in football. She was just there because she loved me. Fishing trips seemed like a chore to him. He didn't get into the fact that he was with me. He wanted to go and drink beer with his buddies. Um, My dad eventually sobered up, but by that time the resentment was there. So it just like this angry relationship where it was just like that you could cut tension with a knife anytime we were in the same room. I was angry at, at my childhood. Uh, you know, I, I went through some things with uh, a very close family member, and you know, I don't, I don't want to get into that too much. But you know, it really it messed with me. But you know, there's just there was there's so many little things that at the time, you know, it was just you just shut them out, and then as you get older, you realize that you know they didn't go away. You know, you need to deal with them, and and you know, it was just it was fear of dealing with those. It was anger of the things that I was subjected to. Maybe I was angry that I didn't have control over it. I was just a very angry person, and it, and it stemmed from early in my childhood. Our traumas can start at a very young age. And if we do not learn to deal with those, they never really go away. It can affect us no matter how hard we try to shove them down. So, how did Chris deal with all his traumas? And where is he at with that now? 
It's been a tumultuous journey filled with hate, anger, and bitterness, but also one of love, forgiveness, and an unexpected friendship. Chris was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, before moving to Southern Ohio to a town called MacArthur. I went to high school there, and uh, by that point, I was I was really resentful. Um, I started getting in trouble a lot, and I remember one of the recruiters from the army came to my school, and uh, it was really more of a an attempt for me to just get out of class for the day, <laughs> and. Uh, I went and took the ASVAB test, and I, I scored, you know, pretty good on it. You know, he, he started pursuing me pretty hard after that, and, you know, I looked at it as a way to get out. I was like, you know, they take care of everything, school, room and board, pay. I mean, really, all I got to do is just show up, and uh, I'm taken care of. So, so I joined the Army, and, you know, 13 years of my life was spent doing that. Um, that was in 2000 when I joined. You know, the military indoctrinates you for whatever fight you're involved in at the time. Obviously, we were engaged in the war on terror and focused on, on you know, targeting people of Muslim ethnicity. You know, I never shot at a paper target or, or interrogated a an actor that wasn't, you know, a traditional Muslim with uh, the garb and, and, you know, just everything about it just reeked of of attack and and prejudiceness you know you just automatically assume so i do this for 13 years i get deployed overseas i've been to afghanistan i've been to iraq i've got three deployments under my belt um and somewhere along the lines i guess that seed was just was planted that i'm supposed to hate these people um on october 31st of 2008 uh in Afghanistan, I lost a very close comrade of mine, Daniel Wallace. Um, we were we were thick as thieves, man. We from the day one at basic training, we just ended up everywhere together, and and we were inseparable. I started to to bond with him uh, because he was just always that laid back and cool guy that could just make everything seem okay. When when he was you know killed in action, it was. It was like there was an emptiness in my life and in my heart that I could never feel. And it just, there was an anger that took place. Um, it was probably the deepest anger that I've ever felt in my life. Uh, I was alone. I, I just, uh, it really traumatized me. Um, after that, you know, I, I was, you know, I completed that tour of duty. I, I've been blown up. I've had, uh, you know, several injuries and concussions, uh, shrapnel, um, just just a lot of you know crappy stuff that happens but you know we sign up for these things when we're in the military it's it's what we put ourselves at risk for and we know the risk when we sign up i come home and i uh stayed with the national guard for about another year and during that year is when i met my wife i was in jackson kentucky uh state active duty mission there was a really bad flood in 2009 uh we we're tasked with, you know, providing water, rations, uh, emergency relief, and, and rescues and things of that nature. On the way home from that mission, I wrecked a Humvee and broke my back. Uh, seven rolls total, six barrel rolls and one end over end, over end. And that was my induction to opiate painkillers. And when we come back, we continue the story of Chris Buckley. From hatred and anger to redemption and love... 
his story after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Chris Buckley's story. Chris had served as a veteran, and when he came back from deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan, he got in a severe accident that ended with him becoming addicted to painkillers. We pick up where we last left off. I started abusing painkillers pretty regularly after that, and eventually it just upgraded, you know, with the alcohol to methamphetamines. So five years of my life from that point was spent just the worst kind of junkie addict you could ever imagine. I, I tried to remain like completely focused on what was going on in my in my country. It was, uh, I guess, the, the patriotism in me, I guess. I wanted to know what was going on. And I started noticing that there was a lot of, you, you have to pick a side. You have to choose if you're a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative. You know, it's just there's so many choices. Everything's a choice in this country. And you're forced to pick. And if you don't pick the side that somebody wants, well, then they're going to they're gonna attack you. And you're going to become the, the, the victim or you're going to become the, the target. So uh, I, I started getting angry. And, and the anger from Wallace, the anger from my past, from my childhood, everything just resonated into this ridiculous decision to join the Ku Klux Klan. With my military training and... and the, the things of that nature, uh, coupled with the access of drugs and alcohol in, in that organization, I thrived. I, I rose really quickly to the rank of Imperial Nighthawk for the state of Georgia, which was like head of security, head operations, and, and things of that nature. I started to get my, my son involved. Um, like he had his little clan robe and he would go to rallies and in cross light ceremonies as we called them. And, uh, you know, I was really just starting to indoctrinate all of this hate that I had. And I, I was ruining another innocent life, you know, and, and like my wife had to be the, the, the voice of reason in this. She, she had to stand up and say enough, you know, because I was failing in my responsibilities as a father, as a provider, as a teacher, as a husband, as a protector. It's like I was, I was sacrificing not only myself, but now I'm, I'm, you know, dragging innocent victims into this, this lifestyle of hate, you know? Chris's life had come to a head. He knew something had to give. Um, and then I met Arno Michaelis. My wife kind of set up this intervention. Um, Arno is a former white supremacist skinhead, uh, white nationalist who he, he found his way out. Um, he's the author of a book called The Gift of Our Wounds. You know, Arno came to the house and, and, you know, 
he, he began this daunting task of trying to, I guess, rehabilitate me. But because of the drugs, it was really hard to break through to me because I was just in this cycle of, of uh, self-worthlessness and anger and just being mad at the world and, and everybody owed me something, you know what I mean? It was, it was really exhausting. I felt like everybody in my life had betrayed me. I felt like my wife turned her back on me and stepped out, uh, you know, outside of our trust circle and, and brought in another person to, you know, I felt like I was blindsided. I felt like Arno didn't understand what I had been through. I felt like he was just talking out of his... Yeah, it was just so I was mad at myself for letting it get to this point to where somebody felt like they needed to give me an intervention. Um... And it's just like it, the list goes on, like all these cliche thoughts that that you know go through a person's head. And then on top of that, I had my clan uh, members that I was involved in were were you know continuously trying to fight that tug of war battle and keep me you know as as you know an asset for them. And it just it was a really a really hard struggle in my life at the time. Um, I was already having thoughts of trying to you know get out of the organization but I mean I just I guess I guess I just needed an out and um, Arnold he never gave up on me he uh, he flew me to LA we did some time at Homeboy Industries spent some time with uh, Hector Verugo uh, Father Greg Boyle and uh, I think that moment it, it's, it's definitely a tie between that moment and spending some time serving the homeless at the the midnight mission that uh, that planted that mustard seed that just made me decide that I'm not living my life the way I need to. You know, we sat down and, and one night when we were in L.A., we were sitting at the counter. Arno's sober, clean and sober at this time. I'm still using pretty heavy, and, and they had a, uh, a wet bar, the Airbnb that we stayed at. Like, it was stocked and loaded. So, like, I'm sitting at the counter drinking, and he's like, dude, I could just see the exhaustion on you. You need to change. You just Just give it up. You'll feel so much better. And like he said that, and he said exhaustion, and I was like, man, he's right. You know what? I, I am tired. This is such an exhausting lifestyle. And then just, you know, seeing that, like, no matter what I was doing, I, I was causing more for the problem. Like, I was, I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. People in his life were helping him out, but he still had a ways to go. Around this time, there was another man, the same age as Chris who had faced his own struggles in life. His name is Haval Muhammad Kelly. I'm a Kurdish refugee from Syria. Uh, we had to flee Syria in 1996 due to the political oppression of Kurds. My father was a lawyer and we had a you know, good middle-class family and then the police stormed our house, beat my mom, my dad was in jail. And we were lucky that he got out and the next thing they told us, if he goes back in jail, the political oppression and we he would never come out so we fled to Turkey and next thing I know well you know we were in Germany in refugee camps around 1996 you know we applied for asylum and we weren't allowed to stay we had to extend our asylum every six months and after a few years I find out if even if I finished high school I couldn't go to college so my dad applied to come to the US or Canada the United States accepted us to come as refugee. Unfortunately, 9-11 happened. We lost our dream. We felt like, you know, America's not going to take a refugee family, a Muslim refugee family after 9-11. And 
And next thing I know, we got a call from the embassy saying, hey, you got three days to leave. We couldn't tell you about the date of the ticket because of security reasons. And we're like, oh, where are we going? It's like, oh, we're going to Atlanta, Georgia, because the weather is similar to Syria. Uh, we arrived in the United States September 25th, uh, you know, 2001, literally two weeks after 9-11 uh, in the South. You know, I was 18, my brother was 14, my mom was this four-years-old woman who never worked. You know, as a life as a refugee, you literally, like, you know, get about three to four months of rent support and some money for food, and then on your own, and my dad had a heart disease, he couldn't work, my mom couldn't find a job as a Muslim, non-English-speaking woman in that time, and so I started washing dishes as a high school senior learning English, uh, you know, 40 hours a week, and I... You know, the, the interesting part, you know, I went to Georgia State after finishing high school, and then I went to Morehouse School of Medicine, and in 2000, and, uh, you know, 12, I started my internal medicine residency at, at Emory University, which is literally a block away from the, you know, from the restaurant where I used to wash dishes. So, and now I'm doing my cardiology fellowship, and, you know, in heart medicine training at Emory. I mean, I never worked in my life. You know, we were in Syria. My father was a lawyer. You know, we had a good life. When we were in Germany, when you're on asylum and refugee status, you're not allowed to work. So I never worked in my life. I mean, I just went to school. And when I got here, I mean, I had no choice. My brother was 14. He couldn't work illegally. And my, my mom couldn't find a job. My dad was sick. So I had no choice but to support my family. So in the first job that I was offered was washing dishes. And I don't know how to wash dishes. I mean, I don't know, like I just learned on, on the go. But the best thing happened to me is to wash dishes. Because, you know, it was right across from Emory and every day I'd see all these physicians and their scrubs come in for lunch and dinner. You know, and I was a ghost to them. I was this guy who was like washing their dishes. But, you know, it helped me learn English. When I was washing dishes, I had the time to learn English in my head because washing dishes really is just the most numbing, you know, brain-numbing job you can do. It's very redundant, so you don't have to focus much on the job. And, you know, and it was an inspiration for me. It was like, you know, I don't want to do this all my life, so I better study and work hard. And when we come back, we'll find out how these two lives intersect. We'll bring them together. Chris Buckley's story, Haval Muhammad Kelly's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Chris Buckley's story. We left off with Chris on his road to recovery from drugs, alcohol, and leaving the Ku Klux Klan. We also heard from another man named Haval Mohammed Kelly. Chris and Haval's paths were about to cross. Let's get back to the story. So we have this man who came into the country as a Kurdish refugee. Now, he's a doctor and volunteers with veterans. One day, he decided to go to a conference where he just so happened to meet someone. Honestly, I was attending an Islamophobia uh, conference at the Carter Center, and it was all about, like, you know, the, the, the increase of Islamophobia. And I didn't know, like, you know, why I was invited, because I'm a community advocate, and I focus on solutions. And I remember when I was sitting there, this one guy with a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flop walked into the Carter Center where everyone got dressed up in nice suits. And there's like all the tattoos on his body and his chest. And I'm like, God, Lee, what is this guy doing here? But he sat next to me and we became best friends from all these academic scholars and ambassadors and prominent people. I actually felt very close to him because it was Arnold. He's a guy who was a former white supremacist who, like, you know, was very prominent in those groups and and just left that group because of an experience he had with a Sikh person who changed his mind. And, you know, and he was now like, when you get over his tattoos and his looks, he's like almost like a teddy bear personality. He's like the nicest human being, full of peace and love, but he came from a place full of hate and, and violence. And I was, you know, surprised. I'm like, you know, we shared our story. And he's like, you know, I'm about to go meet this guy who lives in like, you know, somewhere Somerville, Lafayette, Georgia area. Who, you know, former KKK. He's thinking about leaving. His wife contacted me. And I'm like, man, I want to come with you, but I'm on call. I have to go like to the VA hospital and work. And he's like, oh, he's a veteran too. I was like, perfect. Let me know how I can help him or work with him. He's like, you sure you want to talk to him? I'm like... I have seen, I mean, I'm still in my training, but I have seen a lot of things that could shock me more than dealing with a former KKK member. And I, you know, I wasn't familiar with the KKK to that extent. He's like, oh, he's like a, a I don't know, dragon or a, I was like, I don't know the rank, but that sounds pretty prominent to me. So, and you know, and then the next thing you know, he connected us through Facebook messaging you know, we started, you know, like, and then he started connecting us through the phone, and I think Chris had problems with his phone. So back and forth, I think, you know, I tried to call him, and he had some issue going on. But I was persistent. I felt like, you know, you know, maybe I should keep talking to this guy. And, you know, and the next thing we know, we start messing each other, talking on the phone, having discussion. And I'm like, and after the first discussion, I'm like, I know you came from a very... You know, very deep, extremist place, and now you're trying to find, like, a very neutral place and, you know, trying to help yourself. And I understand where you're coming from, because I came from, you know, also from, you know, you know a life struggle. And, and, you know, let me know how, I, you know, how we could be helpful with each other. And, so we, and I also found that we share a common, you know, ground. We both had tremendous love for our country, America. We talked about the division going on right now. We talked about, like, you know, Republican versus Democrat, 
all these different issues. But one thing we agree on, that this the division cannot keep going because it's going to destroy this country. And we need to do something or show people that me and him could talk at least and meet up, that people could be able to do that too. And that's what it is. It was a simple friendship. A simple friendship. So Haval got connected with Chris through Arno Michaelis, the same guy that helped Chris in his intervention. Haval decided to drive up to meet Chris. And let's just say Chris was more than a little nervous. The first thing he said when he walked in the door was, hey, your blind date's here. And uh, like it was funny because I, I, my wife told me like on the way like for him to get here, I was like really nervous. I was trying to make sure that you know, like, we live in a really rough part of Lafayette. I mean, it's... I was, like, running around trying to make sure everything was, like, at least, like, put up and clean. And, like, is the house going to be okay? You know, is he going to like me? Am I going to make a fool out of myself? And she was like, Chris, Chris, you're married. And I don't think you acted this feminine about, like, anything. Like, you know, like, like I wish you acted like that when I was coming home from work or something. She goes, just relax. She goes, you're a great person, and, and he's going to like you. But, like, I remember my emotions were, like, really high. But, like, I was just really nervous. Like, I wanted to make a good impression because, you know, I, I just respected the fact that he was coming all the way from Atlanta just to just to come and sit and have a conversation with me. And it was it was boggling. Like, it just, why, why, is, it, why is this so important? I'm starting to realize now just why it's so important. How did Haval feel as he headed to meet Chris? A lot of people think me as a Kurdish refugee, a Muslim guy, who will be afraid of someone like Chris who was part of the KKK and hated Muslim and literally went to fight Muslim, you know, as part of the military. But then I tell people he's the one who has hate toward me. So he's more afraid of me than I'm afraid of him. I don't have any hate toward him. I mean, yeah, he's part of the KKK. Yes, he's like has, you know, that that group has racist views. But I don't, you know, I, I I'm against their views, but I don't hate them. Like, you no, know, hate is a very strong emotion. You know, like to me as a physician, when I walk into the room and as a patient, I mean, as a heart, as a doctor in training cardiology, when I walk in the room and someone has chest pain, I don't ask them the religion where they prejudice of yours. My goal is to help them to fix their heart or to find a way to fix their heart so they could feel better and their family feel better. I mean, the same way I approach any human. I don't, you know, I just give them the benefit of the doubt and see maybe my interaction with them as a regular person might change their mind. And I felt like, you know, when I walk, it was cool. And the way I treated Chris, the way I treat people, my friends, and the way I treat people in my Kurdish culture. You know, and our instinct is to connect, you know. What was the response of those around Haval to him meeting Chris? You know, and, and most of the response were very positive. I mean, like a lot of people are like, wow, I, you really must have been courageous to talk to Chris. I'm like, no, I think Chris is the one who like has more to lose talking to me because, you know, he's putting himself in a spot of being now prejudiced toward and being hated toward. You know, like he's putting him in a spot to like create more enemies and, you know, I, you know, one thing is I heard a couple of responses from my very few, like from my, some of, you know, people like who actually a Muslim background or immigrant. He's like, oh, yeah, you had it easy. Like, you know, Chris is different. Maybe Chris is one simple example. 
Like, you know, but others don't change that easily. And there's always a saying in the Bible and the Quran that says, if you save one human's life, it's like you save humanity. But I always tell people, if you could change one mind, you could change the mind of humanity. Because think about it. Now Chris and his community could go back, and if he hears any prejudice toward immigrants and refugees, he'd be the one in his circle step up and be like, hey, excuse me, I know you've been thinking like that before, but let me tell you about, I know of all his communities. They're very good people. They're not, they're not the people we shouldn't, you know, be racist toward them because of some ignorance we have. Because I know these people now. But that's how you change the mind of humanity. When we come back, we continue with the story of Chris Buckley and Haval Muhammad Kelly and their meeting and their flourishing as two human beings who, well, in other circumstances, would never have met, let alone come to know and love each other. Chris Buckley's story and his friend Haval's continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Chris Buckley and Haval Kelly's story. Chris was a former white supremacist that became best friends with Haval, a Muslim refugee. We return to the last part of their story. After going through some training on anger management, I've learned that hate is a secondary emotion, and it's also a byproduct of anger. And once we realized what I was angry about and the emotions that were triggering that, you know, I've I've, I've been able to work on that. Have all said something to me one time, and and, and like I remember, it, it, it'll always be something that's just a cornerstone of of my values that I'm trying to re-establish. Is it, it's hard to hate something that you know, you know, and, and that's just one of the most simplest and deepest emotional things that anybody's ever said to me. And and I don't think he realized how important that comment was. In, in my life changing the way it has. So, Chris was no longer angry, and he was no longer afraid of Haval. But how was it that Chris found his way out of the clan, considering he was so entrenched in it? The clan leader was like a best friend to me. Like, we, we was family. When I decided I was leaving, it just rubbed him the wrong way because that triggered the anger and the hatred for me because he felt like he was losing something of value to him. So he really stepped up efforts to retain me. Um, But after talking to Arno one night, you know, Arno suggested that I tell him, you know, hey, I'm done. About two weeks goes by. He just shows up at the house, you know, after not talking to me or or anything. And he goes, come on, I just, we'll go get a beer or something and we'll talk about this. 
My wife begged me not to go. She was like, don't go. Just feel this is trouble. It's just something's not right. And I knew what it was. They were going to beat my ass. Been a part of it a million times. I knew what was coming. But I wasn't going to run from because I didn't want to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life and wonder, are they going to get me? You know, where are they going to come from? Um, I knew that, you know, to face it, just as I had faced going and, and requesting membership to join, you know, it was the honorable way out. I told her, I was like, ah, oh, it's going to be fine, you know, I mean, nothing bad, it's nothing I can't handle, it's just Jeremy, you know what I mean? I get in the truck, and we're driving, and we're talking, and uh, he, he's trying to, to get me, you know, to, to change my mind, and when he sees that it was just, you know, I was steadfast in my decision, I remember we, we detoured off, and uh, you know, I asked him, I was like, so where are we going, man? Like, uh, town's that way. He goes, yeah, I know. I was like, oh, so we're going to do this, huh? This is how it's going to be? And, you know, we pulled into an old logging road there, and uh, he said, well, what I want you to do is I want you to get out of this truck right now, and I want you to go tell your brothers what you decided. Out of the wood line, you know, a couple of robed clansmen stepped out. And I knew all three of them that were out there. I, I trained them all, all three of them I trained. And uh, I was like, let's get this over with. And I stepped out, and we just went to tussling. And, you know, it was just... You know, they, they, they roughed me up pretty good to kick my ass. That was the last I ever heard of them. I mean, I've had some threats since then, you know, like uh, race trader. They called me an N-word lover. But, I mean, other than, than the, the physical altercation, some bumps and bruises, scrapes and things of that nature, just words. But, you know, words can't hurt me unless I let them. So I just know that I'm on a path that's been set out for me by a higher force. I think there's times when I still need to learn to forgive myself. Um, and that's really a slice of humble pie to, to have to eat that and, and to say that. But by, you know, by learning that it helps me to, to get over it and to, and to forgive myself. I, I have to forgive myself. I have to forgive, you know, my parents, you know, they, they did the best they could, I, I, I assume. Hardest thing about forgiveness is, uh, if, you, if you ever heard the serenity prayer, you know, Lord help me to accept the things I cannot change, and, and things, and, you know, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The hardest thing in that entire prayer, the hardest word, is acceptance. To accept the fact that, you know, things happened to me that didn't happen to other people, but I chose those those paths in life. Once I learned to take accountability, accountability for me is, is it's, it's important because it, it lets me know that I have owned everything in my past that I'm ashamed of, that I've done wrong, that I've done right, and that I am proud of together, you know, and, and painted the, the bold picture of who I was and who I'm trying to be and, and working towards being. Like I said, I just had to forgive myself, and, and I'm not 100% there yet, but I'm steadily moving to that point, you know? I mean, by giving back to the community, uh, I work with a, a community outreach church here in, in the town that I live in. It's called The Haven. Um, and, you know, that was just, that was really important for my recovery, both from alcohol and drugs. You know, to sit down and just open the door to conversation. You know, a conversation with somebody is the most powerful weapon you have. Um, you can sit around and let people tell you how to think all day, but, you know, there's nobody in the world that could ever change my opinion about Haval. 
nothing that would happen. I consider him one of my nearest and dearest friends. If anything, I feel like, you know, I, I need forgiveness from him. Chris and Haval have become the best of friends. And they have nothing but admiration for each other. Haval volunteers his time at the, at the VA to know that, that the place that he chose to give back was so that he improved the quality of life for my fellow veteran. That made him a hero to me. And he does it for, for, for the love of just America. You know, I, I love America with all my heart. And to me, I think Dr. Haval, he should, he should be the, the face of this country, really. I mean, like, because he, he identifies and embodies everything that this country is supposed to be. Haval loves the country that opened its arms to his family. He knows that he wouldn't have been able to do it without the people that have helped his family along the way. I mean, you know... Uh, you know, like, we have this perception in America that, you know, we all have to, like, you know, work very hard and we can do it, you know, by working very hard and doing everything we can. But that's not the way to our success. You know, I tell people, like, I am a product of the indirect and direct act of kindness of America. I mean, remember, I came here post-9-11 as a Muslim refugee, Literally within two weeks of the attack, and the next thing I know, the Southern Christian Church, member of the Episcopal Church, you know, and that's all since Episcopal Church, they came here and they welcomed my family. And I'm like looking at this, I'm like, I mean, I can't believe that these Americans came and helped us. And I never experienced anything like that in the world. Like, this is what makes this country special. If these people believe in me, and it was selfless in their interest to really help me become who I am. Like, here I am, I'm a, you know, I'm a cardiology fellow at Emory. My brother is a general surgery resident at East Tennessee University. We didn't make it because we only worked hard. We made it because we had people also helped us along the way. And these are the Americans who did it. So now is only, the least I can do is to give back. Haval understands how far Chris has come and couldn't be more proud. You know, and... You know, like, Chris has given me a lot of credit, but honestly, it's like, I tell people, like, I came to this country as a refugee, and I started from zero and became now, like, what, went from zero to 90 at 100. Chris, you know, went from zero, maybe from when he started like me, he went to negative 100, and now he's back to one. He doesn't get that much credit as me because I am at 90, he's at one, but he made much more faster progress than I did with what he went through, like, with his life, so... It's my job to show the people, like, hey, like, as you much have seen my successes, don't forget about the success and progress in people like Chris because they actually made a faster and much more severe progress than I did. Chris and Haval try to keep in touch, and they see each other about once a month. Their friendship has become natural, not forced, and it's meant to be an example to those around them that if someone like Chris and someone like Haval can become best friends... What does that mean for the rest of us? What should our perspective be about those who are different from us? I'm a Christian, he's a Muslim, but both of our books tell us that we're supposed to lift each other up. And, you know, 
two completely different religions. I don't care if he's a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, or a Christian. He's my brother and my fellow man. And, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to lift each other up, motivate and support, and we're going we're gonna to spread that as a contagion. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. Great job on that, Faith, and what a beautiful story. Please, if you'd like, share this story with friends. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. It'll be up there on our website. Share it near and far. And by the way, while you're there, sign up for our newsletter, and you'll get our five best stories each week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and share it with friends. And what a story about love about compassion, about people from two different places coming together, and in the end, about how love triumphs over hate every time. And my goodness, Chris Buckley has taken a long road, and so has Haval Mohammed Kelly. And this, by the way, folks, is a quintessentially American story. And the media doesn't want to tell you these stories, folks, because we're getting along each and every day in this great country, intermarrying, taking care of one another, But of course, what the media wants to do always is find the outlier, find the hate, and put a camera close to it, and in the end, spread it. Chris Buckley's story, Haval Muhammad Kelly's story, two friends, their friendship, a blossoming and growing one here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 